So I was just a few months into my very first full-time ministry assignment. I was a youth pastor up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I get a phone call from a parent saying, my son has locked himself in his room, and he refuses to come out, and I want you to come and get him out. I've been to Bible college, I had done some seminary, there was not a course, there was not a book, there was not a chapter of the book about how to pull unruly teenagers out of their room if needed. And so I showed up, knocked on the bedroom door, said, hey, I don't know what I'm doing, do you know what you're doing? And he opened it up. Every day, every week, every month, you and I will be called into someone else's crisis. It's not something we're looking for. It's not something necessarily that we feel all that trained for. But you will be invited in. And that invitation is sacred. It is holy. When people are in the midst of crisis, when things are chaotic, it is a holy responsibility to be the one invited in, called into someone else's crisis, whether it's something painful happening in their marriage, whether it is an obstacle with their children, whether they're waiting on a diagnosis or they have received a diagnosis. You will be called into someone else's crisis, and most of us feel painfully unprepared for those moments. And what we end up doing is we end up spending a lot of time thinking of the right way to phrase the text message. You know, what emoji do I put on to the end of this knowledge? Uh, my marriage is really struggling. Does that, is that a sad face? Is that a... Thumbs down. I don't know how to respond to that. I don't know what to respond. They found a mass. I don't know how to respond to that. We feel painfully unprepared. Often we don't know what to say or what to do, so we do nothing or we say nothing. Other times we say things that are true, but they're so shallow they're not that helpful. And then other times, honestly, we say the wrong thing to the right person at the wrong time. What do I do? When I am called into someone else's crisis. Daniel chapter 2 is going to show us what to do. If you turn there, Daniel 2. So we started Daniel last week. You remember from chapter 1, we're in the Babylonian Empire. King Nebuchadnezzar was a tyrant that God used for his own purposes. The Israelite young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah were given new identities. They were given new literature. They were given new languages. They were even given new names. But Daniel established his boundaries. You remember he was fine with the literature. He was even fine with the name. He was fine with the new language. But what he would not do is he would not eat the food from the king's table. And he had to work out a deal. Where if he looked better after 10 days than all the other wise men 
of the king, then he could keep eating fruits and vegetables only. And it said at the end of their three-year training process, uh, that the results had spoken for themselves. Daniel and his three friends were ten times better. They were ten times more trained, more equipped, more suited than all the other king's advisors. So we'll start in Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him, and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the diviner priests, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. And when they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream and am anxious to understand it. So he's having one dream that's singular in verse 3, but it says dreams in verse 1. So he's having this one dream over and over and over again. The Chaldeans spoke to the king. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give you the interpretation. And the king replied to the Chaldeans, My word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a garbage dump. But if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you will receive gifts, a reward, and great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. They answered a second time, May the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will give the interpretation. And the king replied, I know for certain you are trying to gain some time because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. You have conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent until the situation changes. So tell me the dream, and I will know you can give me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king, No one on earth can make, the, make known what the king requests. Consequently, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any diviner priest, medium, or Chaldean. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. The decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed, and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. A few observations I'd love for you to write down. First, King Nebuchadnezzar had a disturbing dream. So the king's dream throws the whole administration into chaos. The, the Babylonians, you, you may have learned this last week, they were very religious. But their religion was more, in the, one, the words of one historian, more of a, a systemized superstition. So they had a whole pantheon of gods. And essentially what would happen is the king in power at that time would pick his favorite god from among the pantheon and that would be the primary god. And so Nebuchadnezzar had picked the god Marduk and he had even named his son after this god. And so they looked to these gods in the same way that we might look to a superstition. And they believed that these gods primarily spoke through dreams. That's why Daniel uh, is elevated so quickly, because at the end of chapter 1, it says that Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. This was a priority in the Babylonian kingdom. If you had this ability to interpret dreams and visions, uh, you were well sought after. You were very important. So what happens is Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that disturbs him, but he knows 
that his interpreters essentially can make up whatever they want. He can tell them what the dream is, and they can speak so generally that you don't know if they're right or if they're wrong. And so he issues a test. He says, listen, this is a, a test of really how connected you are to all of these things. I'm not even going to tell you what the dream is. And if you can tell me what my disturbing dream is, then I'll know that whatever you say is an interpretation is adequate. And the priests and the sorcerers and the mediums, they're freaking out because they don't have this ability, not just to give it the interpretation, but to tell him the dream. See, when it comes to these priests and these mediums and sorcerers, there are really two options. The first option is that they're hucksters. They're charlatans. They're just making it up. They ask general questions and they give general answers. Maybe they're good at observing people and so they can ascertain certain facts, uh, but they're fakes. The other option is that they are connected to something dark and something supernatural. And we know that this is a reality. Exodus chapter 7, you remember Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh because God has issued a decree. The Israelites are no longer slaves, but they are to be free. And Moses and Aaron were the ones who had to deliver the message to the king who currently enslaved them. And so as a show of authority, God had said, Aaron, throw your staff down. And so Aaron does. In the presence of the Pharaoh, he throws his staff down. And you remember the story, it turns into a snake. Well, Exodus 7 says that the Pharaoh immediately summons all of his sorcerers, all of his medians, all of his magicians, and he brings them in, and they can see the snake there, and they throw their staffs down too, and they all turn into snakes. It's a good reminder for us today that there is a supernatural force out there that does not come from God, but is very real. So when we read about the Babylonians and their sorcerers and their mediums and their diviner priests, we don't just assume that they are making it up, that they're fake, that they're mentalists, that they're able to read people and they've uh, blinded the king. I assume that they actually had some of the same power that Pharaoh's priests and sorcerers had. So we get that same opportunity when you drive by a psychic. Two options. One is that they are fake. Two is that they can tell you your future. They can tell you facts about you that you do not know, but you do not want to know where those facts came from. Maybe some of us even today, at a time of our life, maybe a low point, we were looking for direction and we actually went in to a psychic. But power and purpose are always glued together. And if Satan has given a psychic or a medium the power, the ability to interpret your future, to tell you things about yourself that they should not know, that power has a purpose in your life. And it may be accomplishing something in you that you are not aware because you've exposed yourself to this. So just like we shouldn't assume that every psychic, every medium we see on television or in even our own neighborhoods is false. We shouldn't assume these Babylonian priests and mediums and sorcerers are also false. So Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. He is level 10 frustrated and he orders all of his wise men to be executed. He also doesn't leave us much room to complain about our bosses. (laughs) Observation number two. 
Daniel and his friends ask God for answers. Verse 14. Then Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the king's officer, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, about the matter, urging them to ask the God of heaven for mercy concerning this mystery so Daniel and his friends would not be killed with the rest of, the Babel, of Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night, and Daniel praised the God of heaven and declared, May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you have given me wisdom and power, and now you have let me know what we have asked of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, don't kill the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will give him the interpretation. Daniel and his friends asked God, for answers. So he appears before the king and he asks for an extension on the execution. After the extension was granted, he gathers his friends to pray. This is what the church is for. The church is so that you will have friends who will pray. You can go online and find sermons. You can go online or go to a music store and find worship songs. What you cannot go online and find are friends who know your name, who know you, who know your story, who know your background, who know your strengths, who know your weaknesses, who know your pains, know your victories, who you can call and say, pray for me. That's what the church is for. The church is not just about record keeping. It's not just about attendance. Just in case God is keeping attendance and brings it up in judgment, I want to be here as much as possible. The church is so that people will know you, know how to pray for you, and know when to pray for you. And so you ask yourself, do people here in this place that I call my spiritual home, do they know my name? And if I ask them, would they gather to pray with me? You know, what's interesting, we've all heard of the psychological phenomenon, fight or flight. That's what happens in times of crisis. Your body goes into activation mode and either wants to run into the crisis, fight, or it wants to run away from the crisis, flight. And so we've known about fight or flight as a phenomenon since the early uh, 20th century. And uh, people have studied it, you've experienced it, you've accused your husband of it, and... uh, uh, So researchers recently have found out that those early studies that happened in the early 20th century, they mostly were studying men and the 
phenomenon of fight or flight is greater with men because women, now they've studied you, you've been under the microscope, uh, you have fight or flight, but then it's tempered by this thing that they're now calling tend and befriend. They had to do a rhyme thing because of the double Fs in fight or flight. They So tend and befriend. So you, your fight or flight mechanism, ladies, happens, but then it's tempered. It's brought in with this other thing that happens to you physiologically called tend and befriend. And so you want to defuse the situation. Your, your man, he just wants to violently run into the problem or violently run away from the problem. So men, this is not some badge of honor because some of you have been running away with a lot of vigor. Um, Right, so, but what's interesting, fight, flight, tend, befriend, prayer is the answer to all of those. You want to fight in the crisis, you want to take your stand. Ephesians chapter 6 actually tells you how to take your stand. You can take your stand not unarmed, but with the armor of God. You want to run away from the crisis that you're in or you're called into. What does Proverbs say? Proverbs says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. You want to tend and befriend. Prayers they answer, Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. You need tended to. God is able. Prayer is always the right response to a crisis, whether your own or someone else's. And God answers in verse 19. He answers Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah's prayers. It says, The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. You know, some of us are thinking, well, I'm in the middle of my own crisis, or I have been called into a crisis of someone recently. It'd be, it'd be nice if God made himself known to me in that same way. If he revealed himself to me, if he spoke to me, like this in in a crisis. But the New Testament actually lifts up two very powerful ways that God will equip you with his word, with his voice in the midst of a crisis. The first is he may give you the spiritual gift of prophecy. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you want to turn there with me, just so you know that I'm not making this up. It's talking about spiritual gifts. Every single one of us have been given spiritual gifts for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. And he gives the list uh, Verse 4 says, now there are different gifts, but the same spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God is active in everyone and everything. A manifestation of the spirit is given to each person to produce what is beneficial. And here's the list. To one is given the message of wisdom through the spirit. To another, a message of knowledge by the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, the gift of healing by one spirit. To another, The performing of miracles to another prophecy to another distinguishing between the spirits to another different kinds of languages or tongues, your version may say, to another the interpretation of those languages or tongues. But one and the same spirit is active in all these disturbing, distributing, uh, distributing to each one as he will. Sometimes spiritual gifts are disturbing. So you've been given a gift, and maybe your gift is in that list. Chapter 13, he says, but listen, if you're using your spiritual gift without love, it's worthless. It's empty. And then verse 1 of chapter 14, he says, pursue love, that's chapter 13, and desire spiritual gifts, which he's just given us some exhaustive list to in chapter 12. And then he says this, and above all that you may prophesy. 
So the Apostle Paul, he says, listen, yeah, spiritual gifts are all great. In, in Romans, it talks about leadership, uh, kindness, compassion. These are all spiritual gifts. You may have the gift of teaching. Uh, you, you have a gift of faith, right? And he says, all those are great. The, the Spirit has given those to you, and he's going to inflame those, and he's going to enlarge those in the times of need, and it's going to build up the body of Christ. It's going to build up the church. It's all great. But the one spiritual gift that I want you to desire above all the other gifts is the gift of prophecy. You think, well, so what? I, I predict the future? That's going to be my mode? That was more like what Old Testament prophecy is. New Testament prophecy is more of a specific application of a general principle which God has already established and laid out. So we have his word. It's not, it's not a new word. It's not a new, thus saith the Lord. Usually the gift of prophecy is God has already told us what to do. But I'm going to give this specific how to do. And there are people in our church who have the gift of prophecy. And they don't wear a badge. They don't have a name tag that says, hello, my name is Curtis and I am a New Testament prophet. That would be weird. Right? They'd be living out in the cypress woods in sackcloth and eating honey. You know, none of us are doing that. But when they pray for you, it's different. It's not general, it's specific. I remember a few years ago, really my first experience. I, I grew up uh, Southern Baptist, and Southern Baptists are very good about the practical gifts. Some of the more supernatural gifts, we just pretend that those are for other people and not that helpful. And uh, so I didn't really have any experience with somebody who had a New Testament gift of prophecy. And Amanda and I were at this event, and I was speaking and leading, and actually the young lady who was running the sound system for the event, she came to us afterwards after one of the sessions, and she, she said, can I pray for you? And, you know, if you're a pastor, you can't refuse prayer. It's like you can't do it. You've got to say, yeah, absolutely. I would love to uh, be prayed for right now. And, and so she started to pray. And, you know, probably, I've probably been prayed for thousands and thousands of times in my life. But her prayers were different. It, it was like she had snuck into my hotel room, got in my suitcase, pulled out my journal, my notebook, read it all, was informed by it, and then used it to pray for me. She knew things that I was hoping for that I don't think I had told anybody. She knew frustrations that I had in my own heart and mind that I know I had not voiced out loud to not one soul. And the kicker, the kicker, because maybe you could get lucky, the kicker was she was using phrases, exact phrases in her prayer that I'd only ever used in my mind. And I can tell you, I walked away built up and encouraged just like Paul said I would when you have an interaction with somebody who has a spiritual New Testament gift of prophecy. Some of you are going to be called into a crisis and God is going to give you a word, a, an instruction, a direction that is not just general, but it's specifically for that person and in that moment and at that time. So he may give you spiritual gift of prophecy, but one thing we can all count on is he will give us all the wisdom that we need when we're called into crisis. You remember what James chapter 1 verse 5 says. It says, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and without criticizing and it will be given to him. 
you will always be equipped for crisis if you want to be. You're in a moment right now, forget other people. You're in a moment right now that you can't see the way out of. You can be equipped for that moment if you want to be. You've been invited in, called in, pulled in, thrown in to somebody else's drama, and they're looking to you for leadership. They're looking to you for, uh, what do I do? What do I say? Do I leave him? Do I stay with him? Do I, uh, do I take him to this doctor? Do I do this? What do I do? They're looking to you for those answers. You can be equipped and prepared and qualified if you want to be. God gives wisdom, and he gives to it uh, us to it to us generously and liberally. Observation number three, Daniel interpreted the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel interpreted the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 25, Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. And the king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king, No wise man, medium, diviner, priest, or astrologer is able to make known to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has let, the king, he has let king Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. Your majesty, while you were in your bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. My king, as you were watching, a colossal statue appeared. The statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay, and crushed them. Then the iron and fired clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them can be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live or wild animals or birds of the air, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. The fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything, and like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. You saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of its strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay, and that the toes of the feet were part iron and part fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong, and part will be brittle." You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another, but will not hold together, just as iron does not 
mix with fired clay. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation certain. Daniel interpreted the dream for the king. So Nebuchadnezzar dreams about a big statue, and the head is made of gold, and that is the Babylonian empire. That's King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Babylon ruled most of that world. At the time, they were just taking one neighbor at a time, just like they had done Israel and Egypt before Israel. After the Babylonian empire will be the Medo-Persian empire. Uh, The Medes and Perds are actually going to take Babylon without really any of a fight, and that happens in the span of Daniel chapters 1 through 6. There's actually the Euphrates River is going to uh, decrease and the canals that fill up the city of Babylon are going to expose entryways into the city and the Medes and Persians are going to sneak in and take Babylon without even a fight. And So that's the chest of uh, silver and the arms of silver. After the Medes and Persians will be the Grecian Empire. So that's Alexander the Great. That's bronze. That's a bronze stomach and thighs. After Greece is the Roman Empire. You're familiar with the Roman Empire. Jesus was born into the Roman Empire. That's legs of iron. And after the Roman Empire, divided kingdoms. So it's the remnants of the Roman Empire. And some Bible commentators believe that even we are living in the days of the remnants of the Roman Empire. We have a republic here in the United States. That idea came from the Roman Empire. And all of uh, these kingdoms are going to be crushed eventually by a stone that's broken off into a mountain. And that stone is going to be a kingdom that God establishes. You remember what First Peter says about Jesus. He is the stone that the builders rejected. And what did Jesus come doing? He, he came preaching that the kingdom of God was here. The kingdom of God is at the doorstep. So think about that scene where Jesus is standing in front of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Jesus has been beaten within an inch of his life. He's standing trial for crimes that he didn't commit getting ready to be crucified, stone, who's going to crush the empire. But Jesus doesn't crush the empire in that moment. He lets himself be crucified, resurrected from the dead three days later with what? With a promise to return. But that moment between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, that was the beginning of the end for every government. And he will return. He promised he will return and he will set up his own government. He will set up his own administration. He won't have to campaign. He won't have to make promises that he can't keep. He won't have to, uh, you know, run ads that approve his message. We will all know when we see him. New government is here. A new empire one that we can entrust ourselves to. 
Daniel interpreted the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And then the fourth thing, King Nebuchadnezzar rewarded Daniel. Verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell down, paid homage to Daniel, and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. And the king said to Daniel, your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's Azariah, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah, to manage the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So Daniel gets a promotion because he interpreted the dream. Daniel is called into someone else's crisis. Crisis is contagious, though. King Nebuchadnezzar was having disturbing dreams, and his crisis turned into Daniel's own crisis because if Daniel didn't get the dream, Daniel would lose his life. You're going to be called in to someone else's crisis. I promise this week, you're going to find out about some friend whose marriage is failing. This week, you're going to get a text message that says they found something, going for an MRI next week. I promise most of us this week are going to be pulled in to someone else's conflict, to someone else's moment, to someone else's sadness, despair, death, pain. They're going to drag you in. They're going to pull you in. And it is a holy responsibility. People are never more open to the gospel of Jesus than when they are in need of wise counsel. And God will have raised you up, equipped you, sent you in. So what are you going to do when you are called into someone else's crisis? Three things. First, inquire of the Lord. Second, speak the truth. Third, be humble. That's what Daniel did. He inquired of the Lord. Ask God for answers. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know who's right. I don't know who's wrong. I don't know what your will is. God, but you do. And I want to do your will. So if you'll just say it out loud, I will do it. There's not a better posture to be in than be able to say to God, I don't care what happens. I just want to do what you want me to do. So just make it clear to me. And that's the step I will take. Inquire of the Lord and inquire seriously. I found this to be true, that God speaks clearest when the need is greatest. If your ministry is primarily to your television set, God's voice will always be cloudy and unclear to you. If your greatest act of service is to serve yourself, the whispers of God will always be muffled and hard to understand. But when you say, God, I I have a need, and, and even more than that, not only do I have a need, someone else has a need, and now I have a responsibility God's voice clarifies, becoming crystal clear, louder than ever before. Everyone wants God to speak something of consequence, but you will have to be a part of something of consequence first. God gives life-changing words in life-saving moments. 
And so if everything uh, about your life is great and needless, then you better find a need and help meet it if you want to hear the voice of God. Inquire of the Lord. Speak the truth. When God does give you wisdom or a specific word to say, say it where it needs to be said. If you have the truth, if you have that wisdom, but you don't say it to the person who needs to hear it, you are not their aid. You become their judge. I had someone say to me recently about a decision that we had made a long time ago. Yeah, I knew that was going to be a bad idea. And I said, well, that would have been helpful to know back when we were making the decision. So when we hold on to wisdom, we become their judge and not their help. We come, become a hindrance to them. We come, become a pain to them and not a, and not a help, not a helper. Speak the truth and be humble. The person God uses the second time is the person who does not take credit the first time. The person that God uses the second time is the person who does not take credit the first time. You are an influential person. And because you are an influential person, you're going to be invited, called into someone else's crisis. And you're going to inquire of the Lord. You're going to speak the truth. And you're going to be humble. And God is going to use you. Let's pray. I want you to think just in a spirit of prayer right now. Who... whose crisis, whose pain, whose difficulty, whose moment are you currently standing in? You're standing with them, you're standing alongside them. In prayer, can you say, God, give me the wisdom, give me the direction, give me what I need. Help us to be your guides to your people. Just like Daniel. In Jesus' name.